Good morning. My name's Craig, one of the pastors here. Over the past several weeks, we have, as a church, we've been looking at emotions. How do we navigate emotions? And this morning, we've got a doozy. We've got a doozy of an emotion. We just got to say it up front. We're talking about anger. On the one hand, we've heard lots of folks lately been saying that anger is something that's a healthy part of our life. It's healthy to feel anger. Healthy people feel anger. And we hear that and we're like, yeah, that, that registers, that tracks, makes sense. And on the other hand, angry people scare us. It's just a reality. I grew up in an angry home, and the yelling, hyperventilating, and crying taught me, ah, this is not something I want to have a relationship with, anger. So we struggle to feel anger. On the one hand, people are telling us, good, healthy, healthy people feel anger. On the other hand, we've experienced angry people. We may struggle, we may struggle to feel anger, but you don't have to read the Bible long to discover that it doesn't seem like God struggles to feel anger. You don't have to read it long at all. You just start flipping the pages open. You get to the flood, the crossing of the Red Sea. When the children of Israel are eventually going into the promised land with the new leader, Joshua, Joshua, the night before they go in, this figure appears to Joshua. He's dressed up like a soldier, and he's carrying a sword in his hand. Fascinating. One of the most interesting questions in the Old Testament, though, Joshua says, he figures out it's God, and says, hey, whose side are you on? Are you on our side or our enemy's side? And God says, neither. Now, before we try to explain all this away, say, well, that's the Old Testament you know, God was really angry and grumpy in the Old Testament, but he's really mellowed out in the New Testament. I've heard that argument. I've heard that argument many different ways, and I've just not found it to be convincing because I've read the New Testament, and the New Testament ends with this book called Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, they're like chapter 13 through 15 maybe, there's a whole section about the seven bowls of wrath. Does anybody know what wrath is another word for? Anger. So, ah, what do we do with anger? We struggle to feel anger, and it's like, ah, God's angry. How do we navigate this? How do we, how are we supposed to, what, how, how do we move forward? Complicated even further. On the one hand, counselors talk about anger's healthy. Pastors, though, on the other hand, and I dug, pastors, all across traditions, across denominations, kind of with one voice are like, anger, bad. Shut it down. There's one exception that many pastors, though, give to this, and it's this very elusive category called righteous indignation. Have you heard of this? Righteous indignation, okay? Righteous indignation, pastors say, is it's okay to feel this. Well, what is that? Well, it's very rare. Very rare. It's like a Cubs win the World Series kind of rare thing, but it's when you're angry and you're not sinning. You're like, well, when would I encounter that? We don't know. We have no idea. And we're like, oh my gosh. Well, what do we do? 
How do we feel and navigate anger? Luke mentioned the 80s. Uh, my older brothers are children of the 80s, and there was this popular board game in the 80s called Othello, where it had like black on one side, white on the other side, tiles, and you were trying to flip your, your opponent's tiles. And I think they just let me play because they needed someone to beat. So I don't have fond memories of this game, but I remember a lot looking at the instruction box, and the tagline was Othello, a minute to learn, a lifetime to master. Paul gives us instruction on anger. How do we navigate anger? And it's very Othello-y. You may be saying, I didn't come in here with questions. You've just raised a lot of questions, and now you're going to give me this Othello-type answer that's going to give me no answers to these questions. But here's Paul's Othello version, instruction on how we navigate angry. Here's what, hey, anger. Here's what he says. Be angry and do not sin. Thanks. How in the world do we do that? What does that look like? We struggle to feel anger. How are we supposed to navigate this difficult emotion? See, the answer to this puzzle is not passivity. The answer is not, ah, I feel anger. Anger's hard. Let's just not deal with it. Let's just pretend I won't get angry. You're going to get angry. You're going to get angry maybe even today. How do we navigate anger? Well, we need to prepare for it. We need to recognize the antidote is not passivity. The question is not, do you feel anger? The question is, what makes you angry? Throughout this series, we've been saying that emotional maturity is deeply connected to spiritual maturity. It's very, we don't know what it means to say, I'm spiritually mature, but my emotions, I have no idea how to navigate those. And a clarity that I need to offer this morning is we're also not saying that emotions are amoral. We're not saying that emotion, we're inviting it, feel, feel what you feel, be honest about what you feel. And we're not saying that there are no moral consequences of our emotions. Did you know that there was a fifth plane involved in the September 11th attacks? There was a fifth plane. They apprehended the suspect from this. Uh, he was trying to take over. He was going to be uh, the, take over the plane. They apprehended him at the airport before he could even get onto the plane. He stood trial. And in his trial, they showed videos. I hate even talking about this. I just, it just brings me back to that day. I hate talking about it. But they showed videos of... Tower 1, Tower 2 are on fire, and people are jumping. And some of them are on fire, and you can just see, I remember you can see faces, you can see terror. And they show this to the suspect, and he smiles, and he laughs. Emotions are not amoral. What do we do? How do we navigate our feelings? Just like emotions are amoral, we don't deal with them, though, by burying. There is grace. There's an invitation. There's freedom in telling the truth. And the way that we can be people who, who really do live out this instruction, to be angry, we're going to read it in a second. And if you're reading from the NIV, the NIV really wrestled with this and twisted it. They twisted Paul, not twisted, there was like, no, I'm not like a conspiratorial, that sounded good. They, they just like tried to, there's theology in every translation, and the NIV is fantastic, I read from it. Um, but they were just wrestling with what 
be angry, do not sin. So they kind of adjusted it. When you're angry, don't sin. Hear the slight adjustment there? There's two commands, though. Paul says, be angry. Feel anger. Get mad. And we're like, how do I do that? I've experienced angry people. Like, what, if I get angry, am I going to be scary? Or what if I hurt somebody? Right, what if I act out in violence? What if, what if I say something that's dehumanizing? Be angry. I'm not going to do that. That is not worth the effort. But Paul, in a very gracious way, unpacks for us how we can prepare for moments of anger and how that anger can propel us toward life. See, connection and action, that's what we were made for. We were made for connection. We're relational people made in the image of a relational God. And we were made for action. Right? We're made, God is creative on the opening page of Scripture. We're made to get things done. Anger propels us toward action. So many of us, though, have experienced an anger that propels us in a not life-giving way. And so when it comes to how do we feel anger, how do we, how do we live out Paul's instruction, feel anger, be angry? We don't even have a category for that. But we've got to climb inside the box Paul is thinking in. And he gives us these three ways that we can navigate being angry in a way that propels us toward action. That's life-giving. That can be creative and beautiful. Because you, you, we're going to get angry. You're going to get angry when, you know, you, you tell your kids, hey, it's dinner time, and they just want one more round of Mario Kart. And you're like, hey, I'm being gracious. Do you guys hear me? It's dinner time. You know? And you hear, you know what Mario Kart sounds like, and you're like, oh, another race is starting. Anger bubbles up. We get angry when our spouse comes home from work and they are just spent. They're emotionally exhausted and they've got nothing left to offer. And they go, wait, wait a second, honey, I just got to close one more loop. Anger bubbles up. We get angry when we're at Target. And, you know, we're trying to navigate like this, that, the chaos that is that place. And, we're, you know, the, the cashier is being rude. They're not making eye contact. You're trying to make connection, and they're just being rude. And you're like, hey, how are you? And, like, and they make you feel dumb, asking for a friend. We get angry. Is Paul's solution, when he says, be angry and do not sin, does he say, bury it? Just, just bury it. Just keep moving forward. Don't worry about it. Not a big deal. Or is this an invitation for us to tell the truth about what we're feeling? and be propelled toward life, something beautiful. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 25, Ephesians 4, 25, and we're going to read all the way to 28. Anger. Ephesians 4, 25. It's in the New Testament, so there's like a big blank white page on those Bibles, and then you go past all the spiritual biographies of Jesus. There's a couple letters, and you'll get there. Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Why? For we are all members of one body. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. 
And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands so that they may have something to share with those in need. Jesus, we need help. Anger confuses us. How many of us have been hurt by inappropriate expressions of anger? The invitation to feel anger I'm not going there. Into this space. We trust you're already here. You're already working. Help us to grow aware of what you're doing as we struggle to navigate anger. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul has a threefold plan for anger. Paul's not, he's not content to just leave us on our own. Anger, that's tough. Best of luck. Paul's trying to help us navigate. Hey, how do we deal with this difficult emotion? How do we do it? His plan number one comes right there in verse 26. Let's read it again. Be angry and do not sin. Plan number one for how we navigate anger, feel angry. Feel angry. In the original language, this is two commands. Command number one, be angry. Command number two, do not sin. The Bible is saying how do we navigate angry? anger? We feel anger. That is, we don't ignore it, we tell the truth. And that comes right out of verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Hey, are you okay? I'm fine. <laughs> Something bothering you? No. Everything all right? Yeah, it's fine. It's not speaking truthfully. We tell the truth. Speak truthfully with his neighbors. Why? Because we're part of one body. That's where the, all these commands come out. If you notice in verse 25, it started with therefore. We're starting in the middle of an idea. Well, therefore, why, why, why? It's all the way back in, in verses 1 of chapter 4. The very first command in the book of Ephesians is fight for unity. God has created this new humanity. This Jesus community is something new, like we've never done before. And we're all part of this body. Fight for unity. Tell each other the truth and be angry with each other. That's what he's saying. Tell each other the truth. Right? This whole, my whole problem with this whole idea of like righteous indignation is it's really naive. Right? It's wrong to be angry at people, but it's okay to be angry at inanimate objects. That might be righteous indignation. I heard one pastor say that. That's ridiculous. None of us need help being angry at a lawnmower. Right? This just doesn't work. Ah, that's frustrating. That just is what it is. We all need a ton of help with people. People frustrate us. People can be very frustrating. That's, that's the context of what he's saying. Look what he says. He's talking about speaking truthfully with your neighbor. We're all members of a body. He's talking about relationships. And he's saying, be angry and do not sin. The context of what he's talking about is being angry with people. It is not wrong to be angry. And Paul's saying, don't sin. Feel anger. Healthy people feel anger. If you learn about the horrors of the Holocaust and you just go, hmm, weird. That's not a sign of health. But if you're mad, like, how could they do this? How, how could this happen? It's a sign of health. Being angry. It's, it's moving away from passivism. 
So Paul's command here to be angry, he also didn't make it up. It didn't just come out of thin air where he's just like, uh, hey, we, you know, this new Jesus community, what should we do? Well, let's be angry and not sin. He actually is quoting from the Old Testament. Uh, look, this is Psalm 4, chapter 4, verse 4. This is a David psalm. Here's what David says. Be angry and do not sin. Like, huh. That sounds familiar. Paul? Paul is, 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 here's what Paul is doing. He's pointing to an iceberg. And so just like with normal icebergs, like most of it's below the surface and you can't see it, when Paul says, be angry and do not sin, he's pointing to this whole world that, that he's able to say that. Paul, look, Paul lived in the Greco-Roman world. That, you, have you seen like the movie 300 or like, you know, Sparta? Like, these, these people do not have a healthy relationship with anger. All right? Paul's talking to people who he knows like, yeah, you may have experienced like the rough side of anger. God's not like your dad. God doesn't just fly off the handles at you. God's anger is actually an extension of his love. What? Exodus 34, which is part of what makes this possible for Paul to say this. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. This is when God introduces himself to the children of Israel. It's the only time in the Hebrew Bible when God says his name twice. So what follows is really interesting. God gives five what we call attributes, five characteristics of who he is. He says, I am these five things. I'm, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. We're going to really pay attention to this one, number three. It's different than all the other ones, and it relates to anger. And then he goes, I'm this, I'm this. All right? Here we go. Yahweh passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh. Number one, compassionate. What does that mean? It's like, it's how a mother feels over a nursing child. Care. What I'm holding is precious, and I'm going to treat it like so. That's how God, that's who he says he is. That's nice. Gracious. What does that mean? He gives us favor. What's favor? He likes us. This is our really important one, number three. Slow to anger. We'll circle back to that. Abounding in love. That's number four. The idea of attachment. He connects himself to us, and it's really strong. And then he's faithful. He's not letting go. The four that surround anger are all positive. This one is negative. It's saying something God isn't. Anger is not an attribute of God. Anger is not something he is. God is love. God is holy. God is not anger. Furthermore, who he is, he is slow to anger. He's patient. Why? Because he's so compassionate and gracious that when he does get angry, it's because he has done it out of his compassion and his anger. God is not like your dad. He doesn't come home from work with a really hard day and just fly off the handles at you. He's not unreliable. He's not like your aunt who you'd just be walking around and she would just say the most hurtful things because she was having a bad day. God's anger comes from his love. And when we love things, we work to protect them. 
God gets angry when his good creation is being destroyed. God gets angry when the innocent are taken advantage of, when people act in predatory ways. God's anger is just the extension of his heart as a gentle protector. He's saying, no, I'm having an emotional reaction to this. As followers of Jesus trying to imitate our heavenly father, Paul is saying, it's good to get angry. Here's where we get confused, though. We have beliefs that are wrapped up in our anger that are patterns from how we used to think before we knew Jesus. We've got these beliefs that are not totally in sync with who we are, who God says we are, and what he's done for us. And so those beliefs complicate our relationship with anger. Matthew Elliott, who has his PhD in emotions and the New Testament, he identifies four beliefs that fuel our anger. Belief number one, we believe that someone has committed a blameworthy act. So we get angry at somebody when they commit a blameworthy act. When your spouse comes home and they're like, oh, just one more email. I just got to close one more loop. It's like, ah! Right? Because we believe that's a blameworthy act. We get angry when we believe something we value is threatened. We get angry when we believe something that we hold dear, something we love could be taken away. That creates anger. It's a belief that fuels that. We get angry when we believe something undesirable will happen to us. What's that mean? When, you know, your boss is coming at you really fast, you're like, ah, they're going to ask me to do something and I had plans this weekend and, ah, right? we don't want that to happen. We also get angry, fourth reason, when we believe someone deserves to be punished. A lot of folks were rightly angry at Harvey Weinstein. How could someone do that? It's terrible. That's not okay, and it stirs up anger. These, these are not good or bad. This is just what Matthew Elliott says drives our feelings of anger. What gets complicated is we all have beliefs that are twisted. We may be mad because we believe something we value is threatened, and it might not be. We might be safe, but we just feel threatened. And so we respond in anger. And the challenging thing is, well, how in the world do we untangle this? How do we know that our beliefs driving our anger are, are actually right and good? That's the, next half, that's the second half of verse 26. When Paul says, be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, He's still thinking inside the box of Psalm 4.4. Be angry and do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Be angry and do not sin when you're on your bed. So, okay, so at the end of the day, when I lie down, I need to do some soul searching. We would be right to think that. That's actually not what the psalmist is saying, though. Uh, you're like, what? Uh, in the ancient Near East, beds are references to temples. So when you go to someone's bed, you're headed to their temple. So Isaiah 57 illustrates this. You, this is talking about uh, God. You've set your bed upon a high and lofty mountain. Indeed, you went up there to slaughter sacrifice. What in the world is Paul saying is his plan for anger? First, we feel anger. Then we invite Jesus into that anger. We feel anger. We let things make us mad. We don't pretend they don't. We tell the truth about our emotions. When, our, when, when we deeply value connection with our family and our kids are just out to lunch and that makes us mad, we tell the truth. 
We tell the truth about it. And then we invite Jesus into it. We say, Jesus, I'm feeling this really strongly. Help. That's what the psalmist means when he says, when you're on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Now, this is all lovely. This is very easy to understand. And you're probably thinking, great. Next time I get angry, you know, I'm just going to be like, okay, here's what I do. I get angry. Okay, feel anger. Check. Woo! Got that one. That was easy. All right? Step number two. What was it? Uh, invite Jesus. Invite Jesus. Okay. All right. I'm doing that. Here you go, Jesus. I'm angry. All right? Or as the theologian Mike Tyson says, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. All right? You're going to feel anger. And the, the first thing that comes to your mind is that, what did Pastor Craig say those all three weeks ago? What am I supposed to do when I'm feeling this anger? Right? We, what, what happens when we get angry is our brain goes offline. And we just like react out of the anger. We're not trying to be relational. We're just like, ah, I'm angry. You're trying to take away something I love. I'm mad at you. And so just, we just got to be really practical for a second. Like when we encounter those situations, whether it's like things we love, connection, not happening, or even like things we love, our own time, and someone is just being rude to us. Whatever it is, and we start to feel anger, there's just three practices that when anger gets triggered, if you remember it with your body, you're more likely to be able to do this. Because we have a body and it's not an accident. Part of the gospel is that Jesus, in the incarnation, Jesus took on a body. So the first thing we can do is to, to actually navigate and to really live this out is, is breath prayers. Right? When you get angry, what's happening? Your heart is beating faster. You're having a physiological reaction to like what's happening in front of you. So what can you do? Come back to your body. Breathe. You know, that doesn't feel very spiritual. Well, we're going to pray. Jesus, I'm angry. We're telling the truth. You're living out Ephesians 4. How great is that? When you get angry, we can do a breath prayer. Just breathe. Anger is triggered. I'm going to start breathing. And I'm going to invite Jesus. My heart is telling me I'm angry, and that's shameful, and I need to come back into your presence once I've dealt with this anger, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to invite you into the anger. That's what your word tells me to do in Psalm 4.4. You say, be angry, do not sin. When you're in my presence, search your heart. So let's do that, Jesus. Search my heart. Why am I mad at my kids? Why am I mad at my spouse? Why is this bozo at Target just stirring up so many feelings? I invite you into this. Let's look together. A second thing you can do is just eye contact. Get real practical. You start to feel anger, make eye contact. Again, when our brains go offline relationally, we don't want to be relational, so we don't look at people in the eye. We're like, oh, you're frustrating me. I, I, we just do this naturally. You're like, I'm just going to look over here because it's just easier to do this. It's really hard to look at you. I don't want to do that. Make it just a disciplined habit. To, I'm going to look at you. I'm going to look you in the eye, and I'm going to remind myself you're a person. You're a human made in the image of God. I don't want to treat you in dehumanizing ways because you're a human. And eye contact can remind us of that. And it can keep us from, we can still be angry. There's still an offense on the table. We're not burying it. But we're going to say, I'm not going to sin in this. I'm not going to miss the mark. I'm not going to treat you in dehumanizing ways. So we're going to breathe. We're going to pray. We're going to make eye contact. And then God invented these two amazing words. And these two amazing words, when paired together, do amazing things. It can get you out of anything, and no one will ask any questions. It's amazing. I, I do this, and no one has ever been like, what are you doing? Excuse me. And just walk away. You say, excuse me, 
and walk away. You don't say, excuse me, this is really kicking up a lot of anger in me. I need to go process this. No, no, excuse me. How do we be angry and do not sin? Sometimes you just got to get your body out of there. Right? There, there are situations where it's just like, this is no good. It's going to come out of this. Excuse me. No one's like, what? What? Wait. Just excuse me and get out of there. Because when Paul is saying, be angry and do not sin, what he's implying is that there is a possibility that we can be angry and sin. Now, that word may trip you up like sin. What does that mean? In Judges, I think it's 21, the Benjaminites were skilled with a slingshot, all right? They could have a pot set up way, like yards and yards away, and they could shoot the rock at it and not sin. Same word, hata, the Hebrew word hata. What does that mean? They could not miss the mark. Anger is not missing the mark. There are expressions of that anger that can miss the mark, miss the action God's inviting us to take. What are some of those expressions of anger that miss the mark? Blame. Blame is just a telltale sign that you might be angry and missing the mark, right? How about always never statements? Anybody ever experienced that? Your spouse comes home and you're like, ah, you always go on your phone at the dinner table. I don't mean to be annoying, but that's technically not true. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. There is no way your spouse always, or you never care. Those are telltale signs that our anger is, is pushing us against people, starting to see people as the problem. Blaming, always, never statements. Retaliation. Retaliation can be physical, but it can also be just silence, right? Someone's, someone makes us mad. You know what? I've got the perfect punishment for this. We're just not talking. I'm going to give you a little silent treatment. It's anger that misses the mark. I'm not saying we, need, we don't need space. There may be times when it's just not wise. Like we're all riled up. It's like, I just need space. That's not retaliation. Retaliation is, I'm going to punish you. You've made me mad. Mm, I know that me not talking to you is going to drive you crazy. So enjoy the next half hour of crazy. <laughs> Bitterness. What's bitterness? Ooh. Bitterness is what Paul describes in verse 27. Or excuse me, uh, verse 26. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What does that mean? We deal with things quickly. We feel it. We don't let it fester. Right? Paul's not saying in 6 o'clock in the wintertime and in 8 o'clock in the summertime, you better stop being mad. You better be thankful daylight saving hasn't gone away because you've got a little bit more time to cultivate that anger. Paul is saying that we deal with things quickly because when we don't, it, anger quickly slides into this thing called bitterness where now all of a sudden it's not even just about, it's not about the thing that made us mad. It's not about the person who made us mad. It's just about us being mad. And the problem with bitterness is we, it starts to just eat away at who we are. There are incredibly bitter 20-year-olds 
But those 20-year-olds, if they haven't dealt with it, by the time they hit 60 and 70, that bitterness has taken them somewhere. They do not want to go. It's an unhealthy, it's an anger that misses the mark. Hatred. Hatred is anger that misses the mark. I hate you. If God is love and God gets angry, there's a possibility we can be angry at sin, we can be mad, we can be hurt by it, but when we slide into anger, we've slidden away, into hatred, we've slidden into, away from where God is when it comes to anger. And lastly, violence. I want to be really clear about this. The invitation to be angry is not an invitation like, oh, great, now we're a church where people pound the table and where they scream and they throw things because we're just angry people. Acting out of our anger in a way that intimidates, acting out of our anger in a way that intentionally harms others, whether physically or emotionally, is anger that misses the mark. That's not God's plan for our anger. Not at all. And how do we, how, okay, but where do we go now? If, if we really are going to be people who really have a healthy relationship, all right, we feel anger, we invite Jesus into our anger, but we're still angry. Where do we go? How do we get through this? And that's where Paul's last piece of instruction is truly Othello in its nature. This word, you're going to know this word. You hear this word all the time. You may say this word, but to truly walk it out, we cannot do this in our own power. Paul's plan for how we deal with anger, how we prepare for anger so that we don't get caught off guard by it, is we forgive. Look with me at verses 26 and 27 again. Or 20, yeah, 26 and 7 again. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Skip ahead to verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another. That sounds a lot like Exodus 34, doesn't it? God is kind and compassionate. Forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. I know that talking about forgiveness can stir up a lot. There are people who have wronged us in real and significant ways. Forgiveness does not mean, hey, let's, it's Mother's Day. Let me take that person I've been struggling to forgive and just have a Mother's Day fe feast with them because that will show I've really forgiven them. That's not forgiveness in the New Testament. Forgiveness in the New Testament means to trust God's justice. Forgiveness says you have done wrong. There's a problem. I'm not saying you're the problem, but there is a problem. And I'm going to trust God's justice. Look back with me at Exodus 34. We really struggle with this passage I want to unpack some of the tension we feel about it. So verse, we already talked about those five characteristics of God. Now he describes what they do in verse 7. Maintaining love to thousands. Thousand, the Hebrew number Eleph, is the largest number in Hebrew. There's nothing bigger than it. So what, maintaining love to who? Tons of people. Forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet... He does not leave the guilty unpunished. 
He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, this really trips us up. Because we're like, yeah, God's a God of justice. We like that. We need that. That's, that's the only thing that keeps me from grabbing a brick and fighting back is God's justice is coming. Then Moses drops this nugget on us. He, did you hear it? Uh, like, huh? he, uh, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children uh, for the sin of the parents. So the third and fourth generation, you're like, whoa, what? Hmm? Here's, that can create a lot of struggle. Let me just simply say what's happening here. Three and four, are those big numbers? No. Gosh, what do they teach in school? Three and four, little numbers. So God is angry to the third and fourth generation. But he shows love to the LF, to the thousandth. Paul, I think, takes this and reworks it when he says in the book of Romans, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. We can, tr- we can be angry because we are trusting that God has a healthy and appropriate relationship to anger. God does not let the guilty go unpunished. We will pay for our sins either by walking out their consequences or our sins get paid for another way. I don't highlight verses in my Bible, not because I think it's wrong, but because I preach out of this thing and it really confused me. Like, why is that highlighted? And my mind is like gone somewhere else. I only have one verse highlighted in this Bible. One verse. And it's Exodus 54, 7 through 9. You need to hear this. This is God talking about Israel, how they had to walk out the consequences of their sin. Okay? For a brief moment, I abandoned you. But with deep compassion, I'll bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness... I'll have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this, this relationship, this me bringing you back, is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. Listen to this. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. God's not mad at you. Why can he say that? Because of Ephesians 4.31. God has forgiven us in Christ. God was angry at our sin. And all that righteous anger at our sin, God himself said, I'll be the recipient of that. I'll bear that. And because of that, God can say to us, I'm not mad at you. That's the only way we can forgive. We don't forgive because it saves face. We don't forgive because it's the right thing to do. We forgive because we've been forgiven. And again, that doesn't mean, oh, everything's fine. No, it means we're entrusting this to God's justice. They'll either have to walk out the consequences of their own sin or their sin will be punished in Jesus. And as a result, we can be people who forgive. We can be people who move toward each other 
We don't dismiss the anger, but we walk the anger out toward healing. Anger creates action. It's good to be angry that our kids aren't valuing connection. Why? Connection matters so much. Like Corey said earlier, we're so disconnected. It's beautiful. And it's like, ah, we want this. We want this. It's good to be, it's good to be angry that our spouse is just not valuing our time. Why? Because we value that spouse. And it's good to be frustrated at a target employee because like, you matter. We're neighbors. We got to live together. And so we walk out that anger. And what we find at the end of it is a God who's saying, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take all the pain that this disconnection bore. And in exchange, I'm not going to be mad at you. God's not mad at us. And that makes us people who forgive. If we don't have a plan for anger, we're going to be passive when it comes to anger. And again, the antidote for unhealthy anger is not passivity. The antidote is feeling the anger, inviting Jesus into that, and then chasing it down to where we can say, I forgive. On the cross, Jesus spontaneously forgave his enemies. That's the target we're aiming for. Are we close to that? Not always. Takes us a few months to get there sometimes. Like, I was wronged, I'll get toward forgiving. But we're disciples of someone who says, I, I forgive. Because God is not anger. He's compassionate, he's gracious, he's abounding in attachment, love, and faithfulness. This may stir up for you things you need to ask God for forgiveness for. Who are the people that you've been harboring bitterness toward? Who are the people that have wronged you that you're just like, no, I'm going to hold on to this. I have a right. I have a right to stay mad. Look, your rights were taken away from you when someone wronged you. That's the reality of it. And we believe Jesus can meet you in the place of being wronged. and walk with you toward where you can say honestly, God, I trust this situation to your judgment. I trust it to your justice. This was wrong. It's not okay. It's still not okay, but I trust you. When we have a hard time praying, sometimes it's helpful to just name the situation. When we have a hard time confessing, we have a hard time what Paul encouraged us to do in verse 25. When we have a hard time telling the truth, sometimes it can just be helpful to have someone from the outside saying, wait, actually, here's what's really going on. Here's what's really happening. In 1974, I believe, ooh, I'm going to take a risk here, but I believe it was August 7th, 1974. Something happened in the United States that had never happened before. A U.S. president resigned. Our 37th president, Richard Milhouse Nixon, wrote a letter to Henry Kissinger saying, I resign, effective immediately, I resign the office of presidency. Why did he do this? Because he was being impeached and there were two counts brought up against him. One, obstruction of justice. He was playing wackadoodle games, trying to shut down the Watergate investigation. Two, abuse of power. All Nixon's aides told him, you're not going to beat this. You're going to go to jail. Because close confidants betrayed Nixon. Left with nothing else to do, he resigned the presidency to avoid the impeachment charge. And then he was pardoned by his vice president, Gerald Ford. People were frustrated with Ford. 
How could you do this? This guy played games with America. He almost broke democracy. And you just forgave him? Why in the world did you do that? He didn't even admit he did anything wrong. Ford said that was a common, a common interaction he had with people. People come to him. He didn't admit he was wrong, and you let him off the hook. And in a very measured way, Gerald Ford would take out his wallet, and he had an old tattered, dog-eared piece of paper that was a summary of a Supreme Court decision, Burdick versus United States. Right? That's just, presidents are different people. Who carries that in their wallet, right? What does Burdick versus United States say? A pardon, quote, carries imputation of guilt. Acceptance of it is a confession. What, is, what was Ford saying? Nixon admitted his guilt when he received that pardon. How does that help us? When we ask for help from God, God, I don't know how to confess. I'm stuck. Admitting our need is confession. Admitting, God, I, I invite you in here. I, I'm stuck. Is declaring something. It's, it's, and it's a receiving like, like when we fall on the love of God, we say, God, like, I, I just have to lean, like, you love me, and I don't know what to do here, but I just, I confess. We are admitting our need for that love. And that's what the New Testament calls faith. Jesus makes an amazing statement. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. With just a little, little bit of faith, you can see impossible things happen. So you may be here needing to receive forgiveness, where you may be here needing to give forgiveness. Admitting your need is way further down the road than you thought. There are men and women who want to just be guides on the side. They would love to, they're not the healer, but they would love to just walk with you as you walk toward the healer. And it's called our prayer ministry. After the service, there will be men and women in this room to your right, the prayer room, and there's a wall, if you notice, outside. And that's just a space for you to just write things, write prayers, write confessions, and just leave it in the wall. An act of trust. Now here's, here's I, need to, I need forgiveness for this. God, I need to forgive. And just leave it in the wall and trust. Those will stay confident. Nobody will read them. They'll get, they'll get thrown away. The pastoral staff will take them, read them, pray over them, and throw them away. We value your confidentiality around here. But don't do this alone. The whole context of be angry, do not sin, is about relationship. Don't do this alone. There's men and women who want to pray with you. I'm going to pray over us. The band's going to sing over us. And we're going to try to walk this out. Jesus. It takes trust. Trust to let ourselves feel angry. Trust to invite you into that anger and trust to forgive. God, what are the ways this morning you've been building trust? What are the ways you've been telling us you're good, you're for us, you're not angry? God, I just pray over everyone in this room that they would experience, they would feel deeply your heart toward them.
You are the compassionate, gracious God, abounding in attachment, love, and faithfulness. God, I pray that we would feel that and we'd know you're slow to anger so we can just bring wherever we are to you, trusting you're already there. God, give us courage this morning. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.